Hello there, and welcome to another Perpetual Outsider podcast. My name is John Bensalia. Thank you for joining me. Um, you can find all my current commentaries uh, for free on the uh, the RSS website, as well as Spotify, uh, Amazon, and iTunes. Um, these are the ones that look back at uh, some classic 1960s, 70s, and 80s TV. Um, hope to be expanding them uh, very soon. Um, and also, if you want to listen to my new Who commentaries, then these are available at Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash John Bensalia. Try spelling that right. I'll give you a prize if you do. And um, I, I hope to uh, work through the new Who commentaries. Um, we'll see how we go. Um, but they're available uh, to unlock from... Uh, just three pounds. So uh, if you're stinking rich and you've got money to burn, money to throw at uh, some sad old git going on about Doctor Who, then um, that's the place for you. Someone once told me that my worst my worst trait is actually really bad self publicity. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I might have to work on the uh, the marketing skills a little bit. Anyway, enough of all that. Today we're looking at. Uh, Doctor Who the Time Monster, uh, for no other reason than it's uh, 50 years ago to the day that episode six was broadcast on the day that I'm recording this. So um, I'm going to have a go at recording all of them uh, in one go and then just upload them bit by bit. So without further ado, let's count a scene in five uh, to episode one, I should say, in five, four, three, two, one. Yeah, come on, DVD play, you know you want to. Here we are. Yeah. A bit quicker this time. So the Time Monster. What do I remember of the Time Monster? Well, nothing because it wasn't born. Um, it was it was a couple of years before I arrived in the world. But I do remember buying the video in November 2001 because it came in uh, a tin. One of those limited edition video tins, with, uh, which they bookended with Colony in Space. Um and this is, um, I'm trying a, a slightly different tack today with the commentary because unlike The Deadly Assassin and Revelation of the Daleks, Time Monster is not really that revered. It's not in the, the upper echelons of Doctor Who favourites. For various reasons, which we'll, which we'll go through. But I do like this opening. I, I like the dream sequence. The Doctor again being tormented by... Images of fire. I, I don't really think he got over that. Uh, what happened in Inferno when the parallel world burnt with Chris? But I don't really think he ever got got over that. So he's having bad dreams about a uh, you know twenty foot tall mask who's laughing evilly at him and lots of uh, zooming in masks and Atlantis. It's a good hook for the uh, for the for the story. Actually, it it actually works. You know, it actually works um, quite a treat. Because we're, um, you know, we, we don't know what's going on. We don't know why the hell the Doctor's dreaming about Atlantis. I don't know. Like I said, maybe he's still tormented by um, the horrors of what happened in Inferno. But he's woken up. And obviously he doesn't like Joe's tea very much. So this is the season finale of season nine. 
Um, back in the days when a season finale wouldn't be all this big, over the top, blockbuster, blockbustering stuff. Oh, I, I think I've been. Um, I think that three to one podcast has um, affected my uh, my Sean Connery uh, <laughs> speaking. I don't know. But yeah, the season finale, and but you know, it, it's not all altogether successful. It's kind of trying to run along the lines of what the Demons did the previous year because it was uh, written by Robert Sloman, and I think with a few input, a little bit of input from Barry Letts. And it runs along the same kind of lines, because you've got uh, the Master trying to conjure up some ancient mythological horror, you know, some ancient mythological beast. You know, we've had a Zal, and in this case, it's Kronos. So it, it does run along the same lines, and, the, you know, even the, the setup of this episode kind of runs along the same lines, because... The Doctor is on a race against time to actually stop the Master from putting his plan into practice. So there, there are quite a lot of parallels. Whether it works quite as well, well, let's come back to that. But anyway, uh, here talking of the Master, he is the incomparable, the one and only Roger Delgado. Even with a fake Greek accent, he commands the, the screen and he's easily the best master the show's ever had. There's there's just something about the way that he manages to combine the silky menace and the humour and also kind of a little bit like the Third Doctor's charm. They, some of the fans have commented that each of the master actors kind of mirrors the Doctor. You know, I suppose like with John Singh, you, you know, you've got the manic, over-the-top Wacky, overs, overzany. How many more adjectives can I describe it? Antics of Bailey Tennant. But with Roger Delgado, you do mirror, you know, kind of like the suave charm of John Pertwee, which Roger Del Delgado gets to a T. Unfortunately, we're lumbered with uh, a couple of stock characters here, you know, kind of cliche characters, Ruth and Stu. Ruth is. Uh, She's the the poster girl for rampant feminism, for want of a better word, and it's not very subtle, shall we say. Unlike Stu, who's just a you know, who's who's a paid up coward with stupid hair and a droopy moustache. I I know there are quite a few criticisms that you can level at the time monster. But one of the things that really elevates it for me uh, from from the lower doldrums is the unit family. I, I really like the setup of the unit family. I like the, the fact that the Doctor kind of has, I suppose, a place to call home because in the early days, he really hated his exile to Earth. But I, th I suppose in this kind of midpoint of his, of his tenure as the Doctor, uh, John Pertwee's Doctor is kind of he's starting to kind of mellow a bit. He's kind of enjoying his, you know, being around, you know, his new friends. He's got Joe, who, you know, he's grown extremely fond of. He's got, you know I, know, I know the Brigadier, you know, he can be a bit of a sparring partner, but I think there's now a little bit of underlying respect there and a, a little bit of friendship. And not just them, but, you know, Sergeant Benson and Mike Yates, who's also in this scene with the Doctor. And I, I like that. I, I like the, the whole arrangement of it. And I think part of why it works so well is just the, the kind of camaraderie 
between the actors, you can tell that they were clearly getting on like a house on fire, all of them. And, it, you know, that kind of warmth comes through loud and clear. And I really like that. I really like, I really like the setup of Unit Family. It's kind of, I suppose, you know, it sounds stupid, but it's kind of like the equivalent of comfort food, I suppose, you know, the, the third doctor years. They're kind of like, there's something quite kind of comforting and reassuring about, you know, that kind of third doctor setup with the unit family, which is, which is an old cliche, but, it, but I, I think it works really well. But it is, a, to be honest, it is a little bit of a shame that the Brigadier is not quite the shrewd um, authority figure that, you know, that he was in uh, the early days. He's a little bit more of a figure of fun. Oh, this is this is the bit with the uh, Joe's laughter. <laughs> I, I, do, I do like that. I, I really like the way that Katie Manning is clearly just bursting out laughing at that line about uh, consulting the uh, consulting the entrails of a sheep, which I really like. It's it's it's. Uh, you can't beat a bit of. Um, unscripted Murphy Doctor Who. I'm just trying to think of other other instances where they where the, the characters clearly corpse on camera. I'm not sure whether Louise Jameson does it in Horror Fang Rock. Because she's you know, I'm not sure whether she's actually trying not to laugh in the early bit of part four, where I read that um Tom Baker was like putting faces at her off camera. Um, I'm sure there's other instances, but uh, my uh, my cobweb memory is is letting me down once again. So here's the final member of the unit family, Sergeant Benton, John Levine, who's clearly angling for a weekend away, but uh, but he's not going to get it because he has to accompany the brigadier down to Wilson. So here we've got John Wise as Percival. Who's the the head honcho of the the Wooten Institute? I think full of bluster here. <laughs> Excuse me. Um. Yes, it's it's one of those. I think they clearly needed a couple of retakes in this because he's just called the Master's Project Aggarant Nonsense, when I think he meant Arrogant Nonsense, Aggarant Nonsense. Well, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe it could be. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a word. Oh, I love that zooming, by the way. It's full of these, you know, kind of real fast zoomings. So that's, um, you know, you can't be a good old zooming in for the 1970s. Whenever they used to have a, you know, a threat or a big plot revelation, they go, wow. But zoom in with a camera. They just did that with a master. But uh, yes, getting back to um, aggregate nonsense, I think, um, yeah, the time monster does suffer a little bit from scenes that could have maybe had a second take or a third take. But don't forget, this was in the days when they were pretty much doing it as live TV. You know, they, they were recording the whole thing as live TV. You know, we don't, they didn't have what we have today, which is it. Uh, the whole rehearsed record procedure, you know, they film a particular scene and, you know, they, they can, re, you know, retake and retake it as much as they like. But back then, pressure was on, you know, 25, to get 25 minutes in the can in about a couple of hours. 
is uh, is no mean feat, really. So uh, I'll I'll forgive the aggregate nonsense this time. So we've got Ruth and Stu. Um, they're tinkering about with this contraption, which can uh, push solid objects through uh, the gap, what they call the gap between the here and the now, which is, I suppose, you know, kind of baffle gap for, um, you know, sort of a time experiments, that sort of thing. Which I'm sure these days they, you know, somebody probably can do. Oh dear, Ruth's going on about the uh, the male of the species. Uh, it's um, it's it's a little bit overdone, I think. The dialogue. I think um, th there have been criticisms of uh, Robert Sloan's writing when it comes to cliches and rather patronising stereotypes, and it crop up again in the Green Death with, when um, uh, there's assertions that Sloan is patronising the Welsh. Which, um, well, I'll, I'll look at that when I get to the Green Death, I guess. But, uh, yeah, Ruth's dialogue is a little bit overdone and it, you know, it's it's just a little bit corny and a little bit cringy. But overall, I think, I think Wonder Moore actually does, does quite a good job. I mean, it, you know, it can't be easy handling all that in a sort of corny dialogue and trying to make it sound actually half realistic. Um... Yeah, I'm not sure about that doctor's. Not sure about the doctor's gadget there. Um, uh, it's called a TARDIS sniffer ouser, but it looks um, a little bit iffy. But uh, let's let's move swiftly on from that. I, I I really like the banter between John Pertwee and Katie Manning here. You, you can tell they're good friends. And after the previous season, where the third Doctor was quite was quite rude to Joe and quite abrupt, he's clearly developed, and you know, a lot of respect for Joe. And there's a lot of warmth between the two. And I, I think it's probably one of my all-time favourite compa Doctor companion pairings. I just really like the warmth that radiates off the screen when when they when they both come on. I, I think it's I think it's just wonderful, and I think there's going to be many instances of that. Uh, of that in the story. And, you know, criticise the time monster all you like, but you've got John Pertwee, Katie Manning, Roger Delgado. That is that is never a waste of time. Never a waste of time. Uh, Terry Walsh cleaning windows could be a waste of time, though, because he's um, he's about to do one of his amazing uh, stunt falls in slow motion, no less. After Joe's pressed the button on the uh, the target sniffer outer. Check. Sounds like he was saying Jack. I mean, where's Sharon's Jack when you need him? Venusian feet. I mean, how how big a Venusian feet? They're constantly tripping over themselves. I mean, that must be hell to go to a shoe shop on Venus and actually look for some uh, decent shoes. You know, or, you know, imagine them going to a shoe shop on Earth. You know, they, they just wouldn't have the right size shoes. They'd have to um, stretch it by quite a margin. Come on, Terry, fall off a ladder, for God's sake. 
Oh, it's working. What is that? Milk bottle? No, it's bars. I, th I thought that um, I thought that Stuart wanted milk in his tea or something. I like the sound effects. I guess I like that kind of creepy sort of uh, that the uh, that the clock is making the slow down clock. Fools. Yeah, some good sound effects actually in this one. Yeah, I, th I think the time monster stuff, I think um, on script, I think it works very well because you've got some interesting concepts about, you know, Paul, tinkering with time and, you know, Kronos, the return of Kronos and Atlantis. But I think maybe the execution does leave a little bit to, to be desired in places on the screen. But so far, it, it, is, it is a lot of fun. And, there, you know, there's, there's quite a good bit of interest here. And, uh, you know, this is, this is well done. Terry Walsh finally falling off the ladder after being there for what seemed like an age. Still got the master theme. Da -da -da, da -da, da -da. Oh dear, this we've done it biz. <laughs> I, I do like the way that that twee kind of we've done it jingle from Dudley Simpson kind of suddenly clashes with the master theme. Da 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 Yes, they still had the jury master theme, but uh, I, I, I don't think the, the We've Done It jingle really kind of meshed. Yes, why is, why is Roger Delgado speaking in a cold Greek accent? I know he's, and the, the strange bit is it kind of comes and goes between scenes, which is which is a bit strange. I mean, he's, he's playing... Um, Professor Thascales. And I'm sure I'm sure there's uh, there's um some sort of fan fiction that explains what ha what happened to the master between the end of the Sea Devils when he went, you know, chugging off in that uh, hovercraft, and now I mean, how, how did he how did he get to where he is in this story? You know, I mean, he you know he he, he probably thought, okay, right, what evil plan can I do next? Right, I'm, I'm going to go to the Wooten Institute and uh, come up with a whole load of fake qualifications and identifications. And um, just don't mention the fact that I escaped from prison. Clearly, um, uh, Percival does not read the papers or news, you know, because he, he'd have recognised the master, wouldn't he, if, uh, if, you know, after he'd been arrested at the end of the demons. Oh, for the days when they didn't have social media, because, you know, the, the master escaping would have been all over social media. Yeah, I mean, the technology of those days is, is a little bit more primitive to what everybody's used to these days. I mean, you know, that great big classic printout, that, you know, of um, computer data. You know, these days you just get it on a tablet or a you know, an iPhone and just go, just swipe, you know, swipe the, uh, the screen and there you go, bingo. You've got all the information at the time of your hand. But here you've got to work with uh, clipboards and uh, printout sheets and good old fashioned pencil and paper. I, I, I think there's quite a lot of charm with all this old world technology. 
you know, you, you can get a little bit too reliant on uh, modern-day technology. Got to say, the quality of a print is actually a lot better than what it was on video. When uh, when it was released on video, they only had the the original five two five line prints to work with, and a slightly better off air color copy of uh, episode six. But these, the condition of this is actually a lot better. It's the video copy was terrible. I mean, it was it was like watching it through a Hessian sack, and you'd have these very strange kind of jerky movements of the characters. They kind of like be moving one pace forward and about ten steps back. And this very, very kind of stilted, jerky movement, the five to five line, low definition quality of the uh, the tapes. Uh, you know, it 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 wasn't easy to watch. But the um, I, I think they did um, five to five. I think they call it reverse reverse conversion or something like that. Anyway, and they managed to make the you know the picture a lot more fluid, and they've added a little bit more color for the restoration team to do. And this this is a lot better condition quality. Whether or not they do anything with the Blu-ray when it when it comes to be released, I don't I don't know. I suspect if they still have the black and white tapes, they can do what they did with Colony in Space, which is just to um, overlay the color signal from the five two five tapes over the black and white uh, master, the black and white uh, copy of a Time Monster, and then just kind of vid fire it and boost the color. And it'd prob probably be in uh, even even better quality, like it was made yesterday. Here comes Bessie with that Bessie theme composed by Dudley Simpson, which is which is you know which is very jaunty. So apparently this was this was filmed off the uh, off the cuff with uh, with the camera placed on the uh, on the side of the doors. And it was just um, John Pertwee and Katie Manning improvising, improvised banter, which is why Katie's voice does sound a little bit lower. She's not quite as, you know, Barry White voice, you know, as a doctor, look at this. But it's it's in a low, it's in a lower register than what she usually is. And uh, they're just bantering on about being a doomy old day. And it does, it does look like a rotten old spring day, actually. I mean, I'm recording this on a, you know, Yesterday it was it was a really sunny day, and now it's um, it's just cloudy and stormy, which is part of the course with British weather. Of course, Terence Dix didn't do the commentary for this, but if he did, he would have by now easily commented on the state of John Pertwee's bouffant, which gets more and more bouffant as the seasons progress, and it is at its most bouffant here. It's it's quite a you know quite a bouffant wise. We're on a scale of at least eight out of ten. Or, you know, probably not as bouffant as Planet of the Spiders or Invasion of the Dinosaurs, which is a easily registers a nine or a ten on the bouffantometer. But it's it's getting pretty close. That was a bit cringe. That ha ha. We've got the obligatory pompous government civil servant. In the form of what's this guy's name? I know his psychic is called Proctor, and the guy playing him is called Neville Barber, who I think will crop up in the Canine Canine and Company spin-off. Is his name Cook? 
I think it might be Cook. But anyway, he's he's the obligatory pompous Tory government civil servant who's you know going on about pheasants and uh, money and all all of that jazz, and he's uh, typically obnoxious, much like every uh, every Tory gonk under the sun these days. Farago. Farago. Who, who uses that word, Farago? See, Benton, Benton's got a lot of insight. I know he's he's not the um the sharp the sharpest tool in the box, but he uh, I, th I think I think he do, he he does know his stuff. But what I don't understand is why they why on earth they wouldn't recognise um, the master underneath. Uh, Underneath his protective gear. Oh, come on, you know. They, they've had so many adventures with him, but surely they would have recognised that voice. Now, if somebody had invented that, that idea, um, the Bessie breaks with the absorption of inertia that can run at a super speed, they'd be a multi-millionaire these days. Sheer speed of that. Although... I'm amazed that um, no police are on the roads to actually stop them. And uh, although, although Bessie would probably outrun them anyway, you know, outstroll them, I think. Stuart's cup of tea. So we're, we're coming up to the cliffhanger, which is which is quite similar to the, the end of the demons. With the the master summoning up some ancient evil. I, I don't really... I, I don't really think it works quite as well. I think the Demons episode one ending, I think it had a little bit more punch and there was a little bit more urgency. This is just the master kind of um, standing over a big green box. And we, we don't really know, you know, that, that hasn't really been kind of enough kind of uh, build up of Kronos. There's not enough to kind of, you know, sort of think, oh my God, he's like a Zalmar too or whatever. But uh, anyway, that, that was the cliffhanger already. But if nothing else, the time monster is a good laugh. It's, it's never less than entertaining. And that's all you can ask for from a Doctor Who story, really. Anyway, that was the end of uh, a time monster episode one. Thanks for listening in. Um, this is me, John Bensalia, signing off. Uh, so until the next time, I hope you can join me for... Uh, episode two of the story uh, but until then uh, thank you very much thanks for listening in and hope to hear from you soon goodbye for now